0: Yo, what's cracking, people? Jose Nino, your estimable host of El Nino Speaks here. And this evening, I'm joined by a compelling guest who I have the unique pleasure of calling a good friend. Buck Johnson is the host of the CounterFlow podcast. What's new of you, man? Well, I suppose the newest thing that's pertinent
1: uh, for this conversation is that I've Throwing my name in the hat to run for city council here in Lockhart, Texas, which shall be an interesting challenge ahead. And uh, other than that, the podcast is going well. Uh, I'm a catechumen in the Orthodox Church, and uh, those things all keep me busy. And of course, I'm a firefighter by day and night, as it were. So that keeps me busy as well. But uh, everything's going smoothly, I should say.
0: Yeah, that's quite the schedule you got there. Now, yeah, before we dive into your city council campaign, which is going to be like of great interest in this conversation, could you give my listeners a concise bio of what you do? Sure. I've been a firefighter for 24 years.
1: I'm a lieutenant, and I don't usually divulge the specific department because, as you could imagine, your listeners could imagine maybe having politics that are of a more dissident nature. That's not always popular with companies and even in this case, a a local government to which I work for. So I've been doing that for a long time. Obviously, I've been doing the CounterFlow podcast for a few years. Prior to that, it was called Death to Tyrants. And I love doing that. That comes out once a week. I live with my wife in Lockhart, Texas with a couple of French Bulldogs. And we moved here in 2020, October 2020. We both wanted to get out of Austin, Texas, as you could imagine, that it got a little bit messy over the years, and certainly in 2020, it was a bit of a mess. And so we got here to Lockhart, Texas, and it's so wonderful, quiet, peaceful, with just enough kind of action going on to keep it fun and lively, but at the same time, I don't really worry about locking my truck doors or things like that of that nature. You know, there's, it's, it's pretty peaceful and safe, so... That's about what's going on right now.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, with what you said about like Austin and like general, it's going through typical uh, big city problems as it's like transitions into just another city. And I don't blame people that push outwards and like try to move out of the city. And I'm already like having plans of moving more north. So I'm definitely with you there now. What motivated you to run for the city council position in Lockhart?
1: I wonder that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I kind of know the answer, but sometimes I think I'm crazy. However, one of the things we had focused on, on my podcast and some podcasters in my circles, I guess you could say, is kind of the the what we call the Hoppian model. And that's uh, something put out by Hans-Hermann Hoppe, the great I guess you would call him a right-wing anarcho-capitalist at this point. And he had a speech called What Must Be Done. And his message basically was not to necessarily say, let's take over the federal government and and create more liberty, because at this point that seems pretty impossible and, and unless things just completely crater, which they may one day, but the thing to do is move to smaller areas. And if you can get like-minded people running the government and your little towns and maybe even the school boards and certainly the sheriffs in positions like that, then you could create sort of a a small little – I don't like even the word utopia, but certainly a small little peaceful town that you can kind of keep liberty, uh, order, and things of that nature – uh, as a priority, basically. And and it's not necessarily, although we'll see with this run that I'm doing, but it's certainly not super hard to do. And you can't do it really in a town like Austin. There's certain towns that are, I, at this point, you would have to write off. So Big time. <laughs> red state like Texas, yeah, small town like Lockhart, that seems to be a doable thing. And that's what I'm here to at least give it a shot at. You know, it's something I've been talking about the philosophy behind a lot of this kind of thing on my podcast for several years. So I find myself in a small town and I look around and I think, I guess I should do this thing that I've been kind of promoting or talking about, this philosophy and this this, uh, version of praxis, how to get it done. Let me give it a shot. So that's what I'm gonna do.
0: Yeah, that's great stuff, man. Now, originally, what got you into the... Ideas of liberty? Oh man, it's been
1: a long time. When I moved to Austin in '98, shortly after that, I was, of course, you keep in mind, everyone knows this is prior to podcasts or iPhones or anything of that sort. So it was the radio or CDs. And Alex Jones had an FM, he was on an FM talk radio station in Austin, Texas. And the station had uh, one of my friends, Jack Blood, was a, was one of the disc jockeys, I guess you would call that, a talk show yeah. hosts.
0: He, he's a legend, yeah, in, in this yeah. area. And
1: so it was a bit more, obviously, with Jack Blood and Alex Jones and guys like that. It was kind of conspiracy-leaning. Uh, and Alex, I started listening to this guy, and I thought, this man's fascinating. And from time to time, he would have Ron Paul on there. And so around 2000, when that election came up with uh, – George Bush and Gore, the libertarian nominee was Harry Brown. And I bought a book by him because Ron Paul had mentioned his name or something. And so I read a Harry Brown book and pretty much was all in as far as libertarian stuff goes after that. And then I went through the 2000s and I was in my 20s and partying a lot. And so I was kind of into politics, but it wasn't my major interest. As you can imagine, as a young single man, I had a few other interests, but... In 2008, when Ron Paul ran as a Republican, I got so excited. I was slightly naive because I genuinely believed when I heard the announcement that he's going to win this thing. So I went all in there and I became a delegate for Ron Paul in the Republican Party. And I'm a musician as well, by the way. I forgot to mention that earlier. And so I ended up playing with a guy named Jimmy Vaughn who was a big Ron Paul fan and he's a kind of a famous blues musician. So we ended up playing at big Ron Paul events, including the forgot what that was called up campaign for Liberty event or something like that up in Minnesota. And uh, then I kept at it. We did the same thing again in 2012. We played for the Ron Paul, I guess you would call it festival or convention or whatever you want to call it down in Florida. Both times this was, corresponding with and next to the Republican National Convention. It was kind of Ron Paul's middle finger to those people. And so we were part of that. And then I would say over the... So when Trump got elected was kind of a a big sea change for a lot of people. And it took me a year to figure out kind of what was really going on with the regime. and, And, you know, I knew the media was biased. Of course, the Ron Paul thing really taught me that the way they treated him. But when Trump became the president, it pretty much showed that they weren't only biased, that there was like an actual agenda. It wasn't just kind of a, well, these guys are kind of left-leaning. This was like a very clear regime propaganda agenda being forced through the media onto the public. And so my positions on some things, maybe not specific matters of policy, changed too much. But kind of the way I viewed the usefulness of the Libertarian Party – which I began to not think it was very useful at this point in our political journey here. And then, of course, 2020 changed. If your opinions didn't change over 2020, or at least maybe take a second look at some things, um, you'd be crazy. And so I started thinking here I've been all these years saying, if we could, I just want to teach people the ideas of liberty. And I know once they hear it, they're basically going to be libertarians. And well, I saw over 2020 that no, many of them want nothing to do with the ideas of liberty. In fact, many of them will work for free as as workers of the state to make sure that you don't leave your house or you don't have too many cars in your driveway. Because if so, these people that at some point said defund the police would actually call the police and report you. And it, it just kind of it was blackpilling. There was moments where I was blackpilled, like, man, these people are as a whole just want tyranny. And I couldn't believe it. And so I think that's just kind of one of the effects that that living in Austin amongst people like that had on me. So I, you know, I said, I got to get out of this town. And once I moved here to Lockhart, none of that was going on. And you still see the masks, of course. I think that's just, unfortunately, part of culture at this point, unfortunately. And I still see them from time to time, but the forceful, tyrannical Habits of the general population that just didn't exist in Lockhart. And I thought maybe I could have a say in stopping any progression of anything like that coming to Lockhart, because it's funny, these people that, that we're kind of talking about all of a sudden realize, man, cities like Austin sure are getting crappy and expensive. Maybe I should move to a small town. And they don't realize that it's their progressive politics very often that that create an environment like a very expensive town with homeless people everywhere and and high taxation. So if they're moving to Lockhart, I'd at least like to be a bit of a a speed bump or a roadblock or an actual stop to anything uh, like that as far as politics coming here would go.
0: Yeah, that point you raised about 2020, it was definitely a mixed bag in how first off you had a bunch of people just blindly follow the corporate press and the unelected medical bureaucracy and do all this like masking and social policing of people who dared to question vouching all these other gremlins. But at the same time, there was a white pill, too, because there was large swaths of the population, especially in like rural and exurban areas with, that were not down with this stuff. And you got to see a lot of federalism and more importantly, localism take place. And that's created a lot of opportunities because I like to look at things from my like perspective. For example, I used to do, I, I was an expat at one point living in Chile from 2014, 2016, and from what I heard, it was like so bad there because it's it was just – and it took place under an ostensibly right-wing government to boot that even some of the American expats there ended up moving back to the U.S., to, specifically to Florida because like Florida – and to this day, I would argue, is like one of like the freest p- parts of like the Western Hemisphere. But yeah, there, I, I do believe that 2020 – was a watershed moment that separated like the real from the fake. Now, I've been watching you from afar, like your, your content and following your content on Twitter, YouTube, and audio, blah, blah, blah. And I have noticed that your views have grown more nuanced, if you will, and what prompted you to reassess some of the stuff that you believed in with regards to liberty? That's a good question. I
1: think a lot of it was 2020. A friend of mine uh, calls it 2020 vision when you can look back on <laughs> 2020 and hopefully your vision got a lot better on what's really going on. And like I said, it went from me being, I mean, I guess in some form you'd call it a blue pilled libertarian, like a John Stossel type kind of libertarian, <laughs> where you think these guys in government what a bunch of goofballs, you know, and- They're (laughs) well-intentioned. Right, yeah, they just messed up. And then all of a sudden you realize, and especially reading, I, I started reading Burnham and I had been reading Sam Francis, but people like that, you realize, wait a second, this is kind of, it's not just some weird artifact. It's just part of how this works and this bureaucracy. That's the bureaucracy behind many of these people are- the people that are, have the power. I mean, we saw that with Trump's, you know, quite, quite obviously this, the whole, I know the boomers, you know, the deep state, you know, is Trump's going to drain the, the swamp and all of this. And it's, they had a point that he wanted maybe to try to do that, but it hits you that someone could literally go in it with that as their message and the swamp and and the bureaucracy defeats him in the end. And so it shows you how powerful this force is. And then I started kind of thinking, you know, I was an atheist, I suppose, or an agnostic. And I started trying to fill in the gaps of, well, what's behind those people? Is there, and my wife and I started seeing people on TV, Fauci and and, and people just in the streets screaming about certain things. And we would say, man, this is evil. These these people are evil. And so I just, I then started thinking, if this is evil, which it seems like it is to me, what's the good here? And so I started looking at it to fill in the gaps and more of a uh, less materialistic and more mystical and spiritual nature, which then led me to the Orthodox church, which miraculously was here in Lockhart, Texas of all places. So uh, that kind of informed some of my nuance and, and change and priorities, I suppose, politically.
0: Yeah. Cause um, just to piggyback off this, Trend. I have noticed that you're not like the only person. I've picked up on a good deal of libertarians who have moved in a post-libertarian, if you will, direction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Some have become populist, paleo-conservatives, nationalists, etc. It's just like they've adopted more like holistically right-wing views. In your view, what do you think explains that trend? Do you think it's largely like the deterioration of like the libertarian movement or were the external circumstances so great that it just forced everybody to reassess their political premises? That's a good question. And I think it's both
1: of those things. Part of it was as far as the libertarian party itself goes, we started looking around and I I think your listeners will, will see this. And now let me preface this. The LPMC, the Libertarian Party, Mises Caucus, I'm not including them in this statement I'm about to make. Those are the best. Yeah, that's the best people in the Libertarian Party. Prior to their takeover, which just happened, we were looking around and saying like these Reason types, Reason Magazine, and especially Cato types, when shit hit the fan in 2020, this is when we need our best voices to step up and, and make some sense out of all of this. And the good ones were Dave Smith, and this is within the libertarian circles, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, Lou Rockwell, Jeff Deist. And it happened to be all of the the ones I would say are right-leaning Lou Rockwell, you know, like the 90s Rothbard-type voices. They made the most sense, and all of the other ones were defending mandates. And, you know, it's like Reason Magazine. They'll always look for A reason to defend something bad like being pro choice and and abortion, and they'll cloak it in liberty terms. But they were doing the same thing with vax mandates and even lockdowns, I saw to an extent. And one guy I saw uh, with a a voice, a blue check within the libertarian movement, defending uh, jab mandates for children in schools. And so a lot of us thought, well, what is the divide here? And the divide. One of the divides, I would say, not, not the only one, but one of them was the right-left, right-versus-left thing. All these right-wing libertarians knew what was going on and could see through this evil. And the left kind of it, it proved all they had been about the whole time is, is trying to gain some glimmer of respect from the regime and from popular culture, things that I have no interest in. And a lot of us, you know, like you mentioned the term post-libertarian. So what I just mentioned, then combined with, well, this realization that no education and just teaching people the principles of liberty en masse, that's not going to necessarily convince everyone at all. And so trying to say, if I can just get this message out there and spread the message, we're going to just fix this country. Well, no, it doesn't appear that that is the case. And so we started, you know, there was a trend amongst a handful of us. We're reading more, mention a small book, Curtis Yarvin stuff, and that leads you to read more James Burnham. And so we started studying the actual structures of political power and how this works. And it kind of went from there. You know, Hoppe was kind of like Curtis Yarvin's, I guess, gateway into where he ended up going. And so a lot of us still love Hans Hermann Hoppe's message. And it wasn't this utopian thing of, if we just abolish government, guys, it's going to be pure liberty. And so many libertarians, that's what they kind of lead with. Well, that's, that's not realistic at all. So why are you wasting your time trying to convince people of liberty being good and that if we can just abolish all government, things will be fine? I, I don't know that that's the case, especially with, you know, culture is a big part of this. With the culture in many cities, the way it is right now, if you abolish the government, you better get out of town because it's going to be a shit show. And you got to have a good moral culture if you want true liberty, especially uh, if you're going to have a very little to minimal government at all, then you'd really have to rely on, on a good moral culture. And I don't think, I certainly, we don't have that. We didn't in Austin. And so that kind of changed some of the ways that some of us were thinking. And a few of us, I did a broadcast with a bunch of them. Pete Quinones did a show. Matt Erickson did a show. And the the term post libertarian kept getting thrown in there. And it was really kind of organic. It wasn't that we all had a meeting and said, guys, this is what we're going to be called. And it kind of threw a wedge between us and a lot of people within the libertarian party. And it created some contention for a little bit. And I think some of that's kind of uh, simmered down now, luckily, but there was a while there where it yeah, it became like they would stereotype us, that you just want to gain control of the state and crush everyone. And it, there was times where I think we would straw man them to an extent. And like I said, a lot of that's kind of under uh, we, we buried the hatchet, so to speak, with many of the people that we had issues with. But that's kind of the the path that a lot of us took is realizing how political power actually works. Uh, how societies kind of function and vote, or if votes even count. But people want government the way things are right now. It's a supply and demand. People want it. There's a demand for people want to feel safe and secure. In many people's minds, that, that is done through government, unfortunately. And so that's where we're at. So it's better to, if you can try to have an impact on a very local small government, you know, some libertarians will call you a statist because that's technically that's you working for the state. Oh, Lord have mercy. I know. I know. And that's certainly a more effective route than just yelling into the wind that we need to abolish the state. And that's kind of where a lot of us are at this
0: point. Yeah, those types, I've come to the conclusion, having been in the direct like political lobbying game and just broader activist game for for the better part of like over a decade is that a lot of these people just don't want to put in the work and they use whatever rationalization possible to not get in the game and pick up like valuable experience. And they'll just like moan about all this stuff. And the the fact of the matter is that we live in a post persuasion era as Jeff Dice and Steve Bannon have pointed out multiple times and you have to adjust accordingly and plus there uh, and if you study like a lot of political trends and all of that, we're in a very polarized environment where people are much more tribal and much um, logic is not going to really drive a lot of their political decisions and how they're they're voting. And that can actually work yes. to our advantage, by the way, because the red tribe is very much on our side, and they just have to be poked and prodded a bit. But blue tribe, there's no way. Those people are gone.
1: Yeah, they're gone. You have to write them off. It is post-persuasion for them. And and to your point about the tribe, uh, we try to also step away from this over-the-top emphasis within libertarianism on individualism. Oh, oh it's geez. just about the individual, <laughs> and that's it. Like, no, it's not just about the individual. We can't just be automatons in the woods somewhere by ourselves, most people, I mean, sure, some of you guys can do that. Most people don't want to do that. And it's better to at least put some emphasis on on people that share your values, or at least don't want you dead, as my friend Pete Quinona says, <laughs> and, and try to form bonds with them and form communities with them. It's not always about yourself.
0: Oh, yes. Actually, the the point you raise about um, that, how things are not always about you is super important about politics because I have seen so many people run these campaigns based on an issue fetish they have that they are absolutely convinced this issue will win in a given like local state or state level race. And these people just get their Clock cleaned because of the simple fact that the constituencies that they supposedly want to represent don't care about that issue. You actually have to meet people where, where they're at and actually start interacting with people and figure out what their grievances are. Now, I want to go back to one point you mentioned about the left versus right paradigm, because in my previous libertarian phase, I used to pretend that I was above it. Why do you think that the left-right distinction still holds a lot of like validity in these times of mass political polarization?
1: I'm not sure that it won't stop being a valid concept. For one, I think there's a lot of... In- stuff inherent within people. And you just see the world a certain way. And and there's a lot of nuance to it. I think one of the biggest problems um, that we would run into when we would argue with Libertarian Party types about this, there's this weird, like antiquated notion that, well, right-wing equals 100% Republican, and left wing equals 100% democrat and no. then even and further from that they would extrapolate well then that means if you're a right winger you support what george bush did with the with the wars in the early 2000 and the neocons and it's like wait a second dude you got to get your head out. it's not 2003 or 2005 2006 anymore this is again after like 2016 lip yeah it really it was such a strange argument. And and of course, we can get further in that the neocons were actually from the left, but that's a whole different story. So yeah, I, I do think it matters now. And I think it's people, leftists, for whatever reason, have this push for uh, egalitarianism, and it's impossible to, to happen. I almost feel like the left is more co-opted, like their thought process is co-opted by regime propaganda more so. Of course, it, it, yes, I understand it exists somewhat on the right, but to naturally just think, I think everyone's equal and we every, every, should always be that way. And if, if it can't, we need a state to enforce that. It doesn't make any sense if you think, you know, just a few seconds into that theory. But here's, you know, a large percentage of the country pushing stuff like that. And of course, we see the corporations doing it now with ESG scores and all this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think a large percentage of the time with political debates, even within libertarianism, I would say even within if you just go to a republican party function or a democrat party function if you if there's strong disagreements it usually boils down to someone on the right wanting uh, order and and structure and peace and people on the left seem to promote egalitarianism which in my opinion leads to chaos and dis and dysfunction
0: yes yeah leftism can be succinctly described as like the promotion of entropy egalitarianism and just the overall disruption of hierarchies in general yes
1: yes thank you for yeah hierarchy is a term i should have used in there yeah, yeah. exactly but it, it,
0: all that stuff is like down it's all interconnected at the end of the day yeah. yeah and i think trying to deny that kind of stuff is like basically like trying to deny the role of like the sex is like a lot of times yeah. to be honest it, a lot of like permutations of libertarianism are political versions of like transgenderism, like at the end of the day, like <laughs> that's what yeah. it really boils down to. Yeah. Now, just one final thought here. Were you ever an official like card carrying member of the Libertarian Party or like delegate?
1: Yeah, I was a card carrying member for at least from the year two thousand to I suppose, in 2008 when I became a Republican delegate. I still might've had my LP card. I don't know how that works. And then again, I joined when we were trying to, some of the podcasters tried to get a push for Jacob Hornberger in, I think that was 2016. And after that, I let it lapse and I kept getting these messages. Hey, are you going to rejoin? No. And so I'm I'm not a member at this point. I'm not a a member of any political party. And I was never a delegate for the LP because I saw it, even when I was kind of, swimming in the ideas. I saw being a delegate for anything like that, what a waste of time because it's not going to do anything. And so when I became a delegate for Ron Paul, like I said, I was naive enough to think, well, he's got a shot here. He's going to win this Republican nomination. There's no way they would pick John McCain. Wrong. And so I became a delegate for him as a Republican because I actually thought this is going to work. So,
0: Yeah. Now, you have a pretty... Vast like experience and like years of just overall work in like this type of like political space. And what specific ways has the LP and the broader liberty movement regressed since you first got politically involved? I would say if you could
1: say they've regressed, it would be because the old adage of if you're not progressing for not the political term, if you're not getting better, then you're you're getting worse. That kind of thing, like when people work out in the gym, if you, you know, if you're just if you're not making progress, you're basically regressing. So for the most part, the LP has not made any progress since I was in it when I started in 2000. And here's what hit me. This kind of hit me one of the times. I think it was 2016. Like I said. Whenever, shoot, it might've been 2020, I can't remember, but whenever we were going to try to support Hornberger, I went into the, an LP meeting because I was going to get serious because my friend Scott Horton was uh, trying to, and he was part of this too. And I went there and yes, there were some new fresh faces who I'm still friends with. Some of these people that I met that night at that meeting, but I looked around and it was many of the same people saying, well, now I'm going to run for land commissioner I'm going to run for these kind of minor offices throughout the state. I'm going to run for governor, like, give me a break. And it's the same people that were doing this in 2000. And I thought, you guys have been doing this little like group meetup, pretending that it's has some relevant function for all of these years and no one's won anything. That's crazy. Why are you still doing this? And so that, in and, and that way, I would say that's getting worse because if you're still doing the same thing over and over and no one's done a damn thing as far as like a win goes, well, you've lost and you keep losing. Now, I will say the addition, like we said, of the LPMC taking over the LP, I'm curious to see what happens with that. Same here. And I, I, I'm fans of a lot of those people So more power to them if they can make some headway and and win some stuff. I know Angela McArdle is moving to Austin soon, so I suspect I'll run into her here and there. And so, yeah, Dave Smith, I suppose he'll be running for president. I've always liked him a lot. I think he's a wonderful man. We'll see. We'll see what those guys do. But up until that, it's done literally nothing since 2000, which I think is crazy.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch the LP under the LPMC's takeover with interest because they're at least now dispensing with a lot of the political correctness and even milquetoast centrism because I've always also argued that a lot of libertarians start sounding like some like weak sauce centrists when you – poke and prod them enough, and that can't, oh, yeah. Yeah, that can't go down. Like, no.
1: No, that's that thirst to be accepted by pop culture. Uh, that's Reason Magazine is full of that. And, and Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld were that. Now, I, I would say that Bill Weld was a, a Democrat in, in libertarian yeah, clothing, but pretty those much. guys were literally saying – we're the best of the left and the, or the best of the Republicans and the best of the Democrats, or I can't remember how they were saying it, but it was some stupid thing like that <laughs> where they're saying basically like, Hey, Democrats, we're good on those cool, on some things. Hey, Republicans, you, you just please like us on some things. And it's such a weird, weak sauce way of, of presenting your message. And of course, no wonder it never went anywhere. And the Cato guys, except for a few of the foreign policy guys at Cato, which I like, but most of those DC cocktail guys at Cato are terrible with their messaging. It's it's so beta male basically. They're, they're just <laughs> so, yeah, begging for ex- They're yeah. begging to be accepted by people that hate them. It's crazy.
0: When you appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one. That yeah. people need to get yeah. that into their heads. And this is like not just a for like political like. Strategy, but also for like marketing and a lot of other stuff. It's very relevant. Now let's go back to your race because we want to talk more about practical policies and just overall taking power because that's the, the business that I'm in. And that's what my political project's all about. For your race, what do you see as like the biggest challenges that you'll be facing?
1: I'll tell you this. It's the office is called city Council Lockhart city council at large. So that basically means there's four district seats here, and they're not up the ones I'm the, the district I live in actually is not up for re-election. So I'm doing the at-large. There's two of those, and I just want one of them, right? It's there's two seats that are at large, they're both up for re-election. The hard part for me, I, as I see it, will be I'm going against two people that are incumbents. And one of them has been, his family has been in and around this town for generations. So he's extremely well-known, and I'm not. And the female that I will be running against, I don't think she's as well-known, and she never responds to my emails, which I think is a weak point for for someone in office. I will say the gentleman responds to all of them. So I think that's hard. I will say also, I'm not big on selling myself. And in other words, like I'm not doing this so I can be, I think political power is fun, or so i can be well known like i don't it's none of those things and so without this like drive for power it makes me not really like selling myself so i'm i suppose i'll be knocking doors which i think is cringe but i'll have to do it and i wa- I, I want to do it not just to get my name out there but i want to understand like you said meet people where they are i'm not going door knocking leading with ideas that i think are pertinent i want to know what the people in this town think uh, what they think is important. And so in that manner, I think that, you know, it'll be kind of a neat thing to, to hear some of these things. because I really don't know what's important to a lot of these people. So I need to find out, but it's just hard. You know, I uh, selling myself, like I said, is not an easy thing to do because it's not an instinct within me. So raising money, although I've got uh, the GOP Mises Caucus helping me do that and um, on big podcast platforms. And I think that's helpful. But just just the tedious stuff of saying, look, everyone, here I am, vote for me. That's just not in my nature. <laughs> we'll see.
0: Yeah, definitely. Running political campaigns is pretty hard, especially when you don't have like a robust network that's propping you up. But you do have to like put yourself out there and not just like on social media. That's a big mistake a lot of people make is that they ignore meat space because that's whenever you, uh, th- those are like the most genuine interactions that you will be making with people that will be etched in their memory. So that's like really important to be hitting the pavement like that. But I recommend that most people do it to get out of their comfort zone and they'll learn yep. on the job, if you will, how to so like yep. develop like marketing skills and all of that. I probably should ask you some things
1: about that. Oh, and by the way, too, there's a farmer's market here every weekend. Is that something you think, I mean, I'm thinking about getting a booth at it and yes, just kind of sitting there with my Yes, son. okay.
0: There's actually a lot of unconventional type of events, in my opinion, that people in the right wing populist space can do recruitment at. I even tell people that if you go to like your local bar and like when like a UFC fight's going down or like a boxing match or whatever, Mm, and you mm -hmm, chat people mm -hmm. up, you might find a good deal of right wing adjacent people or even like black iron gyms as well. The, a lot of these like small business owner types, they're very much on the same wavelength. And those type of connections you can make could be could serve as like donors or people that can put in good word for you to for like volunteer recruitment and all that.
1: Very cool. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as um, Lockhart City Council is concerned, based on what you've like studied thus far. What is like the ideological makeup of these people? Are these like more like good old boy Republican types or are they kind of like more of like those like nonpartisan technocrat type of busybody people?
1: From my studies so far, it's a mix of kind of the mayor seems like a good old boy. I suspect he's right leaning, although it's hard to tell Uh, the lady that represents me specifically my district, which again is not up for election this year. uh, She's a progressive. And there's uh, the rest of them, it's kind of hard to tell. I do know one of them that I've met in person. He is uh, of like mind with you and I. Mm. And so it's kind of a mix. And again, it's such a small city. You know, there's six of them. It doesn't come across to me as particularly partisan, even though I know a couple of – I know the way a few of them lean, even with that knowledge, it doesn't seem very partisan. Again, especially coming from Austin where like that's all it is. It, you know, they have a legit in Austin, there's a legitimate socialist on the city council. And so, yeah, these guys, there's an old Hispanic lady that I'm running against. I suspect she's gonna have a Beto sign in her yard. I don't know that. But I think it's just kind of a little bit of an old school like you know, maybe this family's voted Democrat forever in for, this. The mayor, his family's voted Republican forever. That's the sense of them that I get.
0: Hmm. That's pretty intriguing. Now, I've noticed some people say this, but I'm not sure if this applies to an area like Lockhart that, for example, there is kind of like a nationalization of politics, if you will, that's taking place. Nationwide, where a lot of like national issues, especially that get play in D.C. or in the corporate media, are also talked about in like state house races and even local races. Do you find that that's the case in Lockhart or are the issues there much more local in nature? Much more local in nature
1: over 2020. I guess I moved here in October of 2020 through the end of that year and then, of course, in somewhat in 2021 there was always a segment. I would watch the city council meetings. There was, because you had to do it remotely for a little while, then they finally allowed people back in. But I would watch the city council meetings. There was always a segment of time, of course, during that, that they would dedicate to COVID policy and masks or to not mask, that kind of thing. But, you know, for the most part, it's, all right, uh, we're going to redo this street project over here. It's always local stuff. There's a lot of it's it's genuinely is just straight up local political things that it's kind of fascinating and, and a breath of fresh air honestly because you kind of want to be I'd rather it be those type of things than the 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 mayor's declaration on on Roe versus Wade or something like that so yeah it, it's definitely a small town feel when you watch these meetings
0: yeah it's great to hear that that does go to show. That there's openings for more localized politics because a more like not just like structurally centralized, but also like mentally centralized society. That's not a good sign of uh, respective like civilizations, political and social health. Now, also, just like so far in your time hitting the pavement, what issues have you noticed that get Lockhart residents riled up?
1: Well, I haven't hit the pavement yet because it's too hot. It's August. <laughs> and so I don't know. And and I, I'll say this too. I, there's a bar that I go to here quite a bit in the afternoons on the weekends. And it's people that are tattooed. It's old people. It's middle-aged people. And the good thing is you could probably sit around and point and go, I bet you that person's politics are this and, you know, and try to guess. But I don't know. It's the kind of place where everyone says, Hey, what's your name? When'd you move here? And let's, I'll buy around for the entire bar. And so people are doing shots in there, laughing together. And political issues have never been brought up since I've been in there. Mm, interesting. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah. I, I sat in there one afternoon, maybe a few whiskeys into it. And I thought, What a cool thing. If this were Austin, you'd know. So someone would have brought up vaccination, someone would have brought up Roe v. Wade. And here, no one said a thing about it. It's nice.
0: Yeah, bars are actually, I've always like served since time immemorial as good places to gather intel for uh, politics and all of that. But those type of interactions you just described are generally like missing in any like big city. And that, that's like an indication of like the lack of like overall social trust. And that's one of the reasons that I'm pretty bullish on a lot of like rural America and even like suburban America, because you do see like a lot of like genuine human interactions take place and people having each other's back and remembering each other. Yes. That, that's a so, lot of yeah. that. Yep. And no masks. It's nice. Yes, that too. <laughs> yeah. No COVID 1984 insanity. Yeah. Now, do you have any final thoughts before we depart?
1: Well, I would say if anyone out there is listening and they think... Well, this guy sounds reasonable. I'll support him. I can tell you a place to go to so far. I, I still need to get my own website built, which is another tedious thing. You asked, what are the biggest challenges? Well, that would be one because I don't know how to do that. And signs. I need signs. But right now, misesgop.org buck. So that's misesgo dot O-R-G slash B-U-C-K is where you can donate because again, the Mises GOP caucus is uh, supporting me. I'm their first candidate that they're supporting. And so that's one way to donate to this campaign. And uh, we'll see where that gets us. I, you know, I'm gonna give it a shot, that's for sure. And I think that's my basic final thought is because people always say, you know like I said, I'm bad at selling myself. How do I support you? And I, I'm late to getting back to those messages and then I forget. And then, wait a second, I'm on Jose's platform. MisesGOP.org/slash/buck. That's how.
0: Buck Johnson, everyone, and again, Buck, feel free to plug away all your content, not just like the political related, but also podcasts and where people can oh, follow yeah. you on social media.
1: Yeah, I guess I should do that, that too. You can follow me on Twitter at buckrebel, B-U-C-K-R-E-B-E-L. Counterflow Podcast with Buck Johnson, and that's at counterflowpodcast.com. It's on every. You guys at this point out there know how to find podcasts. You're listening to this. It, it, it's on literally every podcatcher there is. And I have a YouTube channel. Same thing, CounterFlow with Buck Johnson. Hit that subscribe button, if you will, because all the episodes are streamed on there. There's video of almost all of them. There's been trouble with a few lately, but uh, yeah, they're mostly on there with on video as well. CounterFlowPodcast.com has all my links for Instagram and, and Twitter and all of that stuff. So there, Oh, and Patreon as well. There you go.
0: Fantastic stuff, man. And to my audience, I am grateful for your generous attention as always. And with that, El Nino has spoken.